I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are once more into the breach in the bunker, my friend. Yes, keeping the world safe for democracy. At least we're trying to. We're trying. We're if, doing our if best. If we can. We're do- yes, by the way, I think uh, a new segment I would like to uh, think about doing is apologizing each, uh, each week to a uh, significant person or world leader that our country or our president have, has insulted. So I'm going to start out because I was thinking I heard from a German friend of mine today. So I would like to uh, apologize on behalf of the United States of America to Chancellor Merkel, uh, the leader of the free world. I'm sorry that uh, President Trump gave you a bill for NATO. That's pretty amazing that he invoiced her in, the, is, in, in the Oval. Well, it was in the White House. I don't know if it was in the Oval, but that's um, just yeah. absolutely remarkable. So Germany, we are sorry. And uh, yeah, for that one. Yeah. And, you know, we, we also want to thank everybody. We We had a kind of, Big response to our last podcast, yeah, which was unexpected, yeah. and a lot of people tuned in for that. And for that, we are very grateful. Thank you for your feedback uh, and for feedback on our new equipment. Yes, thank you very much, and uh, glad you have uh, found it thoughtful. We, uh, it, it is something people are still talking about, and the more we read what other people said, uh, the better we felt about what we said. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds incredibly arrogant, but well, we're, just, you know, we're yeah. just being honest. We did think that. Well, yeah, you know, and again, I think it's not like we, uh, you and I have talked, it's not like we took that lightly, because uh, I don't think it's something we particularly enjoyed doing, but uh, nonetheless, I think um, you know, we have to be able to look at ourselves uh, even more clearly than we look at other people, which is, it's, it's part of what it means to be a whole person. It's part of what it means to be a person of faith and uh Again, we have to look at our own blind spots and our own ideologies, weaknesses as well. So I think that's an important part of being a, a thinking person and a growing person. Yeah, and also eating your Wheaties. You know, I'm not growing anymore. I think I'm hit. I think five eighths <laughs> about what I'm gonna. It's yeah. about the limits of my growth. But here, it, I mean, you know, that's what it is. It's what it is. It is what it is. But you look good, so it's great. So we were thinking we'd talk a little bit today about there's an article that was in the. Oh, it was the cover story of on, on, of Time Magazine. It is called "Is Truth Dead?" or "The Death of Truth" was the cover. The Death of Truth, right? Yeah. Question mark. And it was patterned after the um, the famous "Is God Dead?" cover from like is it fifty years ago. Like, or, or, yeah, it was probably in the fi- yeah fifty yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. You know, I was reading some background on that article today, and. Just like the God is dead theologians and... Some of them were at Temple. Temple yeah, Paul Temple. Van Buren. Yeah, had a, had a um, divinity school at that point or a theological school. I read Paul Van Buren's dissertation in graduate school. It was done with Karl Barth and it was on, like, it was on the universe, I think a scope of atonement in Calvin's theology. And of course, what you what he presented was Bart's view because it's kind of what you did. Yeah, <laughs> you, you were kind of assigned. Studying with, yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting. Why did they, I did not read what you, I didn't read the background that you read. Uh, what do you think was significant about them pattering off of that particular, because that, that was, that was a magazine. I mean, I was young at the time it came out, but people talked about it for decades afterwards. 
Yeah, it was a very popular it was a very popular well okay i shouldn't say infamous popular infamous yeah, yeah because yeah. There were a lot of people were troubled by it. but you know there's this idea that um that because of scientific materialism and just secular in general increasing secularity skepticism like a host of things that we would say we've been talking about that halick has right. sort of mentioned that, that because of a host of these factors that really the modern world is such that it it you know, that God's, the belief in a transcendent divine being a reality is untenable. So basically you, you could still do theology, but you had to do theology without the concept of God. And so it, one summary said, well, what you do is, you know, don't talk much about God, stick with some of the metaphors the Bible says, but rework them in new modern categories that are meaningful for modern people. Uh, which is, I mean, you know, it's, it, the the people like uh, I was Alwitzer and Van Buren and these folks. I mean, it's not the most inspiring theology in the world, <laughs> right? <no. laughs> like it doesn't. It it, it really it's uh, it's a good reason to be spiritual and not religious if that's kind of what your religion is. And I think it's it's uh, it, it, you know in some levels it was the ultimate playing out of um, you know uh, you know the, the wholesale buying into scientism, if you would, by uh, philosophy and theologians, in other words, that uh, they basically bought the materialist argument, um, and uh, there was that was a lot of people, particularly I think, a kind of liberal strain of Christianity that uh, you know in the 19th century they were going to recreate uh, humanity after the ideal Jesus. That you know their their historical Jesus looked an awful lot like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed German university student. <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, but, there's this, there's that you know. Albert Schweitzer said, you know, like that the, the 19th century histories of Jesus, you know, the, all, the, all the portraits of Jesus, it was like a well, you know, with a reflection. When you looked into a well and saw your reflection, that Jesus always looked strangely like the biographer. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I think that, that actually crosses across all theological lines. Uh, the good, you know, the, the, the good part about that is, uh, you know, in that very maybe sentimental but beautiful children's Christmas song some children see him and they see him the same color that they are that's that's the universal nature of christ but the shadow side of that is that when we start projecting our own prejudices and our own political agendas upon uh jesus whether it is a liberal european one or if you're deer hunting with jesus a fascinating book (laughs) which is a great little book uh but at any rate so so yeah that was kind of the death of god uh, theology and uh, which is kind of funny to call it death of God theology. You have to change the it would be death of Godology because you're taking but, Theo out of it. You yeah. know it's interesting because like Nietzsche in the gay sciences, you know the German is, is God is tot, you know God is dead. But the person who first wrote those words was Luther, and so Luther it's in a Luther a, a hymn he wrote about the you know where he talks about the death of God. Then Hegel picks up on that, and for Hegel he's kind of trying to play off like the there's a negation like God, the universal, and then Christ incarnate becomes the particular. And so there's a negation there, right? Of like, because there's two concepts right. that sublate each other. And then there's another negation between the, the, what comes with the death of, of Christ, which is, you know, God and death, the incarnate God, and, and then death, you know, what's more opposite than God, which gives birth, sublates, and there's another thing spirit and church and there's kind of an absolute and a concrete so there's all these so what hegel's doing and trying to work towards the concept of absolute consciousness is kind of complicated and i and like i've read the phenomenology of of 
spirit, uh, you know, like a couple times and I'm never sure if I understand any, but, uh, (laughs) and I usually think if you ask me what my, what I think about Hegel, it's, I think whatever the last smart Hegel interpreter (laughs) says, it's generally how I view, how I view, but Bart did say it is permissible now and again to do a little Hegeling, but, uh, very interesting too, in Bart's history of 19th century theology, he says that like, he takes up the question, why didn't Hegel become the Protestant Thomas Aquinas? Very interesting. Mm. So, but great book. But yeah. Bart's History of 19th Century Theology is an amazing book. Um, but then, so then Nietzsche picks up in a different way and, and, and is talking about sort of we've, God is dead and we've killed him. And, and the idea is that we've sort of created a world where God is no longer necessary for existence. But when Nietzsche says this, he's not... Um, He's not cavalier about it. I mean, he doesn't, he's very skeptical about whether or not the West in, in the death of a kind of Judeo-Christian, you know, this, this kind of fusion of Platonism with the Judeo-Christian sort right. of monotheism. He doesn't know that we had, we had the moral or spiritual character to replace it. So when he's thinking the Ubermunch, I always, the Superman, I always tell people, don't think of a dictator, think of Little Miss Sunshine. These, like a movie where these people right. are in the face of great adversity and they're standing up to these sort of, to the crowd that it would, would dictate that they can't be free spirits, that sort of thing. But, you know, over against the Uber, the Uber, he, he has the concept of the last man, which is basically this hollowed out, sort of the C.S. Lewis kind of abolition man, this hollowed out product of late modernity that's pretty empty, pretty undaring. Like, you know, Nietzsche said that the most important thing one can cultivate as a per, as a sense of style, <laughs> and, right. and these, this is the this is humanity without any style and just sort of vapid and empty. So that's a long history on the God is Dead Time magazine article, which you can find online uh, if you go to like Wikipedia and stuff. There's references to it. So the last man brings us to Donald Trump interview. <laughs> Huge, bigly, bigly. Yeah, but uh, Gorsuch, by the way, got. Uh, Got some one of the senators got him to say bigly, and then the senator said, "You just said bigly." He's like, "I just won five bucks. I got you to say bigly." <laughs> but that, uh, but yeah, on a, on a actually a very serious note, um, this uh, the 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 issue about is truth dead. Uh, the centerpiece of it is this interview with Donald Trump that uh, you could read through. You know, you can read the transcript of it. Um, where I, I actually saw an edited version of it where they took out everything that was a lie or half-truth in it, and it was only like a paragraph. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's interesting. The Washington Post just did an analysis of the truthfulness of all of his statements. Uh, it, it's amazing. I, I, it's, I was in yesterday or today. It was just unreal. Um, unreal. Just, and so, the, I mean, the article basically says, you know, that, like, you know, are we seeing the death of truth in that? We, he's, and the article, it does have a sort of, it attempts at least to have a nonpartisan tone that's saying, look, we're not saying both parties don't do it. You know, Harry Reid lied, uh, said, you know, yeah. said that Mitt Romney didn't pay taxes when he had no evidence for saying that. Right. You know, the, right. The, uh, Obama, you know, uh, characterized both Romney and McCain's position on abortion as less nuanced than it was. Right. Uh, you know, and things like. So they're saying, look, we're not saying both sides don't consistently do this. But it's, you know, it's the amount of it and it's the brazenness of it. And, you know, they, they were talking about how basically uh, they did the study where I forget it was some political science department or something to the study where they sent three groups of legislators, uh, you know, of things, notices that they're going to be, one said that what they're going to be monitored, that their claims are going to be monitored. 
Another said they're claiming to be modern and falsehoods published, and another said got nothing at all. And they and they did clear, pretty clearly the people that watched their statements more were people that not only were monitored but feared that they would be called out publicly for for making falsehoods. And generally, that's how we hold politicians accountable right. in in public life. It, but what do you do when it when you wind up? In a place where facts, you know, Daniel Moynihan right, said you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. Well, now it seems like we're saying you're entitled to your own facts. Yeah, there was a kind of a, and, and, and again, you know, maybe we have, you know, well, you've been more careful than I have been in terms of merely going to the Nazi Germany analogy. But there was an interesting editorial by a woman who says, I love my grandmother and she was a Nazi. Oh, yeah, I didn't read it, but I saw yeah. it. Yeah, and one of the things she said was, you know, over the years she'd ask, you know, Grandma, how could you do that? They joined the party, actually. They joined the party early, 1937, before they had to. And, you know, she said one of the things, you know, we were he, – he promised economic uh, recovery. He promised jobs. He's going to make Germany, you know, you know, restore our national pride. And – you know, at one point she said, well, what about the things he said were, that were untrue? We go, well, you know, we just said he, you know, we didn't, you know, we knew that sometimes he exaggerated. And um, the, the, the thing about it is that uh, when you give your leaders that kind of pass, you know, that, that's, that, opens up, that opens up the door for all kinds of other things and, and, and horrible things. And, uh, you know, a part of the thing that's even more troubling than him being a pathological liar, and I, maybe he thinks he's saying the truth. I, I don't even know if he if it matters to him. Uh, but the fact that it doesn't matter to a large segment of the people that are supporting him that he's doing this. Yeah, and then I think it has a corrosive mutual effect because then, then what happens is your opposition gets less concerned with you, and you do have a proliferation of fake news on the left. Things right. where they'll do stuff like they'll pull something someone in the Trump administration said and run it as a headline as if it was said yesterday when really it was said, you know, six months before the election was held or before they joined the campaign right. or they do, they do think, you know, but we could link this. The, the liturgists, great podcast. They did a great podcast about fake news and they had a basic science, Mike, who actually I've interviewed for a great guy, Mike Mahig, really charming and fun guy. But he actually has like this nerdy rubric that he runs all news sources, all things through, like, does it do this? Does it do this? Does it do this? Like, is it sourced? Is there a clear author or is it, is it someone you know, how new is the news source? Like, you know, so right. I think that because what happens is people, this is what is so dangerous is that new normals that take place. Right. So, so in the fact of great falsehood, well then uh, the opposition is legit, is legitimate and fighting back with falsehoods and that sort of thing. And then you just get this fabric of society just to case more and more and right. more and more. Yeah, you know, and probably, I think one of the biggest things that set the table for this was, uh, you know, long before there was a Donald Trump running for president, uh, news increasingly became concerned about ratings and making money, and news became entertainment. Uh, you know, that the fact is that there was an attempt to hook people in with the emotive story, with the feel-good story. Uh, there was an interesting uh, following of, of Fox, uh, Fox News cycle. And they just can constantly were talking about uh, this uh, a woman, a girl was raped by an illegal alien, I think, uh, somewhere down in the D.C. Baltimore area. And, and they just, you know, they talked about it again and again and again. And not that that's not a horrible thing and that it, it does have some application was being talked and spoken or, you know, argued and debated. But that, you know, that image, that shaped that. that right. shaped it, the whole it, Yeah. Yeah. You get to. Yeah. I think that's true. That's right. And I mean, you. you 
you know, like one of the best shows on this is Newsroom, which ran on HBO for a couple seasons. Yeah, it was, good, it was good show. Uh, who was the? Um, oh, it wasn't uh, Jeff Bridges. It was um, the guy that played Will McAvoy. Oh, right. It was. Um, he was in Dumb and Dumber. Too. Yeah, he was the guy. Yeah, he was uh, also Chamberlain in Gettysburg. Yeah. Uh, we'll, Jeez, yeah. I, yeah, we'll think of it in a minute. Yeah, but you know that. But that was you know. I remember one scene um, when they were covering uh, the the when there was the oil spill fire, and they're playing out how they covered that. And Will McAvoy wants to just you know keep on the next show, just have spotlight this burning oil rig. And his EP says it's not news. He says, yeah, but it sure is good television. And they, and they struggle with that and try to reconstruct and really do the news right, right. and really try. You know, one of the gr- greatest things, too, I love the point they made in that show. He's like, well, the news is biased towards fairness. He's like, what do you mean? How can you be biased towards fairness? He's like, well, you know, if on a partisan vote that, you know, it, it went that, you know, the Republicans came in and said on a, on, a, on, a, on a strictly partisan vote that passed a resolution that the earth is flat, the news would lead with would, would, the headline the next day in the New York Times would be, Republicans and Democrats divide over shape of earth. So right, right there, you know, he says there's not two sides to every story. Sometimes there's one side. Sometimes there's nine sides, you know, and, and, and so that's the kind of like one of the things that I think it causes erosion of truth in our culture is, well, there's two sides to every story. So that no, it's not. There's not two sides to climate change. Uh, at least 98 percent of science, you know, right. there's not two sides. There. No, there are multiple sides. to what we do about it. But there's not two sides to that story. Like there's right. and and some again some stories there's like nine sides to that. There's that there that there are complex realities where we're we're looking you know can be looked at through lots of lenses. And so that kind of like the two you know there's two sides to every story automatically silos you right and and actually contributes to the to the contribution to the fabrication of your own fact right yeah. And so that ends up we just try to find things that reaffirm what we already. Think and believe, and confirmation bias is so strong anyway psychologically. It is I mean, so strong that is just like so. We don't need help <laughs> with confirmation. It's so funny because um, Lindy just bought my wife just bought this book that I'm gonna read when she's through. That I've heard tons of interviews guys with the guy um, Michael Lewis's new book about is it Thinking Fast and Slow? It's, it's about the guys that did the Thinking Fast and Slow. There's two psychologists. Oh, right, yeah. They basically just show like how bad human beings are at making decisions so basically they would do these games like they would um spin a wheel of fortune like you know that had a Mm -hmm. bunch of numbers on it and then they'd ask the people after they spun it how many nations are in the continent of africa and if they spun a high number they would say a higher number if they spun a low number they would say like if and psychologists would do these kinds of things like i mean all manner of sort of decisions or or people will accept one figure uh, a, fi- a financial figure, if it's a, a loss, um, but not or if it's a gain or not a loss. Or Basically, it's the same financial outcome. But if it's framed as a loss, they react one way about it. And if it's framed as a, as a gain, they react. So it's just right. so we are already I mean, we should just always be. And this is sort of like a, what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. Right. Like <laughs> like I, we live in a, we, you know, if we are fallen, fragile, faltering creatures. Right, look, can, I, can I give the West Virginia translation? Yeah. Sin and messes up your mind. Exactly, exactly. It blows your mind, man. So we are just so capable of self-deception and delusion. Yes. On a good day, when we have On a, a good, good media, when we right. have a good public square that's actually have, having decent civic debate. So, like, when you lose that stuff, you, you just you it erodes the fabric of civil society that makes right. it livable together. Yeah. Now, you know, we could debate 
for a long time whether these truths or any truths are self-evident. But uh, part of the reason we exist as a society is is based on kind of a a uh, agreement. You know, we have to we agree on some basic core principles, values, and that we are going to strive together to you know to live out those values and allow uh, you know. And a big part of our system is based on protecting those views that are unpopular minority views. But that doesn't. I think there's a difference between protecting a minority view and uh, celebrating. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think when criticism becomes persecution, I I think that like, you know, when people take on all sides, a legitimate criticism, uh, which we ought to have of, uh, of our political leaders and they make that, Oh, we're being persecuted. Right. And that, that all those sorts of defense mechanisms wind up contributing to, I mean, I think what the, what the article uh, taught is worried about that, that you can, in fact, we talked about this a couple of months ago, I forget what episode, but, uh, we were talking about this. I, I think it was this Freakonomics episode where they were talking about um, public trust and and how it's like Putnam, the bowling alone stuff. Like right. you know that people are like there's more uh, just loneliness, disconnection, and even there are studies if among white people, uh, among white Americans, whether or not you go to church regularly or some kind or synagogue or or a mosque or if you, religious observance is hugely connected to income. And your view, your outlook on the world, if you're like more paranoid or pessimistic or whether you're more optimistic. So one of this, these studies showed that even though Italy has a pretty corrupt political system on the whole by European right. or American standards, that certain townships, though, certain uh, districts. districts work incredibly well and better than our government. And right. then some are just awful. And they, and they found that what accounted for the, the one factor that was most consistent in figuring out – why it was they were thriving was public trust that there there was lots of mutual trust that went beyond the immediate family you know that, that, that that's you know that went into the civil the civil society and so the less public trust you have the less you can have a civic society and actually get things done together and have a functional government or a functional public square and i think that we're just and yet it's it's also hard to do with diversity right because right. we tend to like our own we or culturally uh, you know, geographically. So that that's really the challenge in a free society is to have a diverse populace and yet at the same time be able to cultivate a sense of shared trust and respect. Yeah, uh, it, it might not be possible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, or there might be, I, that's not, because I think so far the American experiment is an uneven one. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, I mean, if you take a fair look at our history, and you take all parties into consideration. You know there have been there have been consistent winners and losers in our society. One of the things that, for the most part, unless you're Native Americans, uh, yesterday's loser sometimes has an have an opportunity to climb up the ladder a little, a little yeah. bit. And uh, so that's one of the things uh, that has helped re- continue to renew us. And that you know there's a lot of people, or, or as Ben Carson would say, African Americans who were. Immigrants who paid, who worked for lower wages, they worked for no wages. That's what slavery is. You work for no wages. Yeah. Oh my gosh. At any rate, um, but this idea that sometimes the American dream has been most renewed by those who are newest to it. Yeah. That, yeah. And, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's part of the problem, even with them, because some of the most, you know, uh, take your average uh, person who uh, who is a sixth generation American, you know. Or your average, you know, the average person, you know, from any high school, and give them a history test alongside 
someone who's trying to become a citizen. And you see who wins on that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, I, and actually, I think that's part of a problem. I mean, in fact, we stopped teaching. Uh, there's an educational problem to this. This is not just a, uh, you know, a narcissistic politician turning the world upside down. We've been working towards getting to this p- a place where uh, the truth is considered dead, at least on, on one level. Uh, we've been working on this for for a long time. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, Bill Maher, they had a great panel uh, on Friday night, and they were one of the things they were saying was some of the stuff with Russia, even that because of the Cold War, like millennials, they said, are it's like something like thirty, only thirty percent of millennials think it's essential or something to live in a democracy. And and they're, and they're saying, <laughs> no, say that, say that, yeah. No, I, I, I think that I think I, I think, I think you're right. Say that. Thirty percent of millennials surveyed. I, I think this is the number. Only 30% thought it was essential to live in a, in, a, in a democracy, that that was a part of essential to human well-being. Now, one of the panelists was saying, well, here's the thing. We, since 1989, have acted like – we just sort of erased the USSR from memory. I mean, I remember teaching, asking a group of undergrads a couple of years ago. I said, you know, if you saw a cartoon with an eagle and a bear boxing, what does that mean? And most – none of them knew. Right. They were like college freshmen or sophomores. And – that's just a generation where, where, the, where that political cartoon with the Soviet Union and the United States is completely lost on them. And so, like, I, so I think some of the, you know, they were saying that, you know, we need to educate in civics so, so that we know, like, what, what the heck our history of well, society I, is. Can I also say, and, and this goes back to, I mean, it's not just, but Ronald, Ronald Reagan ran against the United States government. Absolutely, yeah. And so yeah. There's, a, there's a sense where these, these millennials, at least part of some of them, some of the households they live in, when, when they've been told what's the chief enemy to our freedom, it's been the United States government. Absolutely. Which is a great way to destroy your democracy and your republic. Yeah, because, you know, it's interesting. I think in the 19th century, or the, or, the, or the 18th century, rather, late 18th century, I think it was fair to say that the centralized state was the biggest threat to, to individual freedom. You could argue that. Now it's corporations are the biggest threat to individual freedom. I mean, you know, you couldn't get, they couldn't get in California because of the lobby. They couldn't get whether or not stuff is genetically modified on labels, just knowing it, not banning it, just knowing it. No, they have this policy in in hotbeds of freedom like China and Russia, (laughs) but you can't get it in California. And and, and, uh, follow the money. So who has paid for all these political ads that have declared war on, on the government? Major corporations. Yep. Yeah. And so, on some issues, it's fascinating too, on some issues like net neutrality, it's not even partisan. There are people on both sides taking that money, which is every consumer should be uh, for net neutrality. Like when you get an internet access and pay for it for your provider, they shouldn't be able to prov- charge you based on the content you're looking. So, because you know, once they can do that, then Comcast can charge you more if you're watching Netflix and not their movie. Thing. You know, and so it's just, right. it is, it is so, uh, it, it's just so insidious. Uh, yeah, and follow the money. Yep. And um, I think we need to resuscitate truth. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that part of it, too, if, if Christians, if we are justified by faith uh, and not by our ideas, our ideology, then we shouldn't have anything to fear by being wrong. And, and, right. you know, wherever you stand on the political or right. societal spectrum of, in, in the exchange of ideas, that if, you, if, if your ideas are doing identity work, that should only be found in the grace of God, then w- you're really going to have a tough time being a truly free thinker. Yeah.
things ever said Turned out to be a lie How will you know the truth? When you stop to wonder why But how will you know the truth? Yeah. Everybody's got a right to love Everybody's got a right to lie The choice you make, it ain't no piece of cake Ain't no motherfucking piece of pie. What if time's only reason was to give us all something to feel? And if so, y'all, the end of the journey's so clear. It gets right down to it. Wait a minute. It gets right down to the nitty of the gritty. When it gets right down to it, you take more than you gave. Everybody's got a right to love. Everybody's got a right to lie But the choice you make it ain't no piece of cake It ain't no motherfucking, motherfucking piece of cake Trade bank accounts and move to Neptune. 